Welcome to the I Create Daily Podcast. I'm Leora Alderson. And I'm Devani Alderson. We're your co-hosts on this journey of creativity and productivity. I Create Daily is for artists in every genre of creating, from musicians to writers, crafters to inventors, bloggers to entrepreneurs. I Create Daily is a movement for creators serious about your art. If you're into creating anything, this podcast is definitely for you. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Hello and welcome to another episode of the I Create Daily podcast, a movement for creators serious about their art. I'm Devani. And I'm Leora. Our guest today is Taoist monk Yoon Rao, formerly author, sorry, Arthur Rosenfeld. And he received his academic background at Yale, Cornell, and the University of California. In 2012, he was ordained a Taoist monk at the Chunyang Taoist Temple in Guangzhou, China. Yun Rao is the author of 14 published works with several more on the way and has received literary prizes and has even published some, some of his books in Mandarin Chinese. Yun Rao has been a contributing writer for numerous prominent websites, including the Huffington Post, Vogue, Vanity Fair, Parade, Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, WebMD, and Fox Business News. In addition to hosting a documentary series on the scientific evidence for acupuncture, tai chi, and meditation, Yun Rao hosted the hit national public, public television show, Longevity Tai Chi, and is developing a couple of his novels about Chinese history and philosophy into, ma into major motion pictures for the international market. Yun Rao began his former martial arts training in 1980 and practiced a wide range of Chinese's, Chinese Kung Fu styles before settling on Tai Chi. A student of some of China's top Tai Chi grandmasters, he was named Tai Chi Master of the Year at the 2011 World Congress on Qigong and the tra Traditional Chinese Medicine. Yun Rao teaches and speaks in South Florida and around the world, and we're delighted to learn more about this multifaceted creator, author, and monk, Yun, Yun Rao. Welcome. Thank you very much. So happy to be with you. Do we need to correct any of my pronunciation there? <laughs> Go ahead. So let's say... Uh, Let's say that we could say Yun Row, like row a boat. Okay. Would that would be easier, easier and better, I think. Okay. Uh, you did you did a pretty good job with Chunyang uh, Monastery, which is just means pure Yang, like in Yin and Yang. Yes. Um, which means sort of pure heaven in the Taoist context. Okay. Um, and I I don't know. I think you probably gave me more credit than I deserve and all that, but. We'll, we'll let it stand for now. Okay. Yun Ro. We'll have to say that numerous times. It's funny because when we, we checked your video before starting, so we got the right pronunciation. And right when I started speaking, it's like I had a 50% chance of getting it right or wrong between <laughs> Ro and Rao. So I'm sorry I got it wrong. So Yun Ro, monk Yun Ro. So, well, this is going to be a very interesting interview because you have such a multifaceted life. And so maybe just start with how did you begin this journey to monkhood? Let's say we credit David Carradine. Uh, yeah. So one of you knows who that is and the other doesn't. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> a fair guess, yes. So uh, that, that, that means that it's time for you to turn on the 
uh, Netflix, I think, has them. Uh, but if not, you can find them elsewhere online. The old episodes of Kung Fu, the TV show. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. From the oh. 1980s. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Kwai Chang Kane. Yes. Right? The, the monkey. So, so when I watched that TV show as a little boy, um, what, I, what I found drew me was not uh, Carradine jumping around and kicking people because, frankly, his martial arts are execrable. But um, actually, it was the monks that got me going. Yeah. And, I, and I looked at those monks and I thought, wow, those, that blind one, incidentally, you know, all of them were bald, which right away made them, you know, gain stock in my book. But, mm-hmm. uh, so I, that blind one had such equanimity in the face of everything, yes? And, you know, he could hear a cricket break wind at 100 paces and, 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 and kick butt without seeming to ruffle his robes. Um, but he just seemed to have such a peaceful life. And I thought, well, you know, when I grow up, I, I, I would like to be something like that. And so I, I guess, you know, I, I can't give all the credit for that because to Carradine, because in truth, you know, you have to be born with sort of a quester gene to feel that the lines that you are being fed about so many things may be inaccurate and it's time to look for other more deep answers. And so you can imagine what a great joy I was to my parents. Um, but I, I, was, I was that kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fantastic. So is it challenging being both a monk and having the re- rebellious spirit? Or does that... Because they, they almost seem counterintuitive, but I'm not going to assume because I haven't been a monk. So. so this is a startling question. I can't, I can't say that I recall being asked that before. Um, let me see if I can do a job with it. In many religions, being a monk requires a certain kind of surrender. And that kind of surrender is mostly, sadly, to authority in the hierarchy of that religion. Does it make sense so far? Oh, yes. yes. So, for, so for a rebellious spirit to strike a tone of obedience in that kind of world might be significantly challenging. I think there are some well-known monks who have had that sort of character and have sort of transcended it in order to do what, you know, in Islam, for example, is called, you know, to, to submit, right? But Taoism really doesn't have that kind of hierarchy, at least not in the very traditional sense. I mean, certainly there was, I was ordained by an abbot and he is the sort of boss of the monastery. And, you know, there was a hierarchy in the monastery. There is a hierarchy. But it wasn't the kind of thing. It was more about what what job do you have? So, you know, okay, uh, you go and and clean the kitchen and you, you know, clean the toilet and you prepare uh, uh, the uh, classics for recitation and you, Yunro, uh, go back to the West and talk about these ideas on media, right? So, I mean, there wasn't, 
there was no nowhere in that kind of framework was there any implication either expressly stated or otherwise that there was one of those jobs was better than another so my rebellious spirit and my constantly raised middle finger is very evident um, you know it's 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 an uncontrollable finger on both on both hands sadly that part gets me into trouble but not so much with other monks um, and and certainly the mad monk manifesto is one enormous paperback with a red cover raised middle finger to pretty much everything if you haven't already read it you will hopefully do so and discover that um, and and so you know I, I may not make a lot of friends with it on the other hand, I feel like there are probably some people who will go, oh, thank you, yes, somebody is finally saying this, what we all are thinking. And so um, that's kind of the purpose of that, that new book of mine. Right, awesome. and speaking of new books, and so, so, so help us like, discover more about your life as, it, as you're living it. So you're a monk, what does that mean? Do you have a job, do you have a profession, are you a full-time monk? living in and amongst other monks in a monastery, then how is it that you're writing and have come to write all these books? So just give us a little bit of the, the picture of your life in that regard. I don't know that, you know, one can be a part-time monk like and one could be a part-time adult film actor or gardener. I think that, you know, if you're a monk, you're a monk. Um, and there may be, uh, there may be a distinction in some quarters between a lay monk and a monastery monk in the sense of, you know, where we do our work. Uh, I don't always wear robes. Um, it depends on what part of the world I'm, uh, I'm in at the moment. When I'm in Asia, I'm more likely to be wearing them more often. Uh, when I'm in Southeast Asia, I wear them most all the time, but not all the time because people there are accustomed to seeing monks. And so, there is no issue with it. In this country, since nobody really knows what a Taoist monk is particularly, the, the, the style and color of my robes, these are, these, this is a, well, the blue thing you see me wearing is actually a, a Kung Fu outfit because I'm going to teach a martial arts class when we're done. But uh, the Taoist the robes are uh, black or very dark blue and they have a um, sort of a square hat and Nobody really knows what that is. So I've been mistaken for, um, you know, some kind of Christian priest or uh, an imam or various other things. Um, generally, the mala that I wear um, gives something away, but depends on the sophistication of the viewing audience. So um, more, more, not so much about dress. Um, I feel like there is a definite coherence between my mission as far as what I've been asked to do by my teachers and what I think is important and the way I feel and see the world and, and the work I do, particularly writing the books. And the only other work I do is, is teaching and speaking. So I, I would say that, you know, those three things are my work and that my monk-ness uh, pervades all of them. Awesome. Makes sense. So, um, but are you on, on your own in that regard? Or are you living in community with other monks? Uh, 
That's such a sad question. I was, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I would. I, I do live. I do live on my own. <laughs> not not with other monks. I mean, I have a family, and I have turtles behind me, and I have four <laughs> hairless dogs, and. Uh, nice. <laughs> but mostly, you know, my 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 students, uh, disciples, followers, whatever you'd like to call them, are uh, sort of a super family, right? So. There's a, there's a couple hundred people in South Florida, and then I have many, many more students around the world in places that I travel to. Um, and they really, that, that's the community in which I function. And in that community, uh, I'm the only Taoist monk. Now I have other friends who are Taoist monks, and I have some friends who are Zen monks, um, but in, that, in this particular community, uh, I guess I'm, I'm the one. Makes sense. So, so many in our audience, your creators, uh, artists, writers, entrepreneurs, um, and some are and, and at all levels of the journey from mm -hmm. just beginning, maybe not even starting to already successfully earning a living through their creative endeavors. So, you know, you're so that's part of our interest uh, to share with our audience. It's like it sounds like you're earning a living through your teaching of martial arts, perhaps as your as be, through being a teacher to your students. Uh, and also through all the many books you've written, is that right? I, I think that's a fair statement, although I may diverge from some of your viewers uh, and, and people who, who ask you for counsel and guidance in these things, because one, one does not become a Taoist monk with the aim of becoming a rich man. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, th this is not, um, I, I have always been largely unconcerned about money, much to the chagrin of some of my family members, um, and, and mostly just figuring that uh, if I, I, I don't want to use that hackneyed phrase, pursue my passion, but that if I live a, a life according, according to these principles and energize my activities with the passion and the things I'm interested in, that that will all sort of fall into place. And, and I would say it has done. I'm not, uh, I don't have a yacht or anything, you know. Right. But I, I managed to live what most people would think is a good life. I travel a lot. I have the things I need. Um, I try to keep things simple. Uh, you know, I have a home. So. so how did you come to have published already 14 books? Yes. I, I actually think it might be more than that. Um, so it might be, I think the manifesto is the 15th. Wow. But out of that 15, there was one that was sort of, published um, by somebody else and it was just a conversation with me so I don't know I it wasn't really like I didn't arrange the publication of that but I guess it still counts because it's a book and I'm in it um, anyway yeah it's, it's based on me um, so I, I this is an opportunity for for me to say more politically incorrect things which is my pleasure um, I, I, I would say this um, I, I was offered admission, I gained admission to a sort of a literary clique in my early life by dint of the fact that I grew up in New York City, I went to an Ivy League school, uh, I, I was a literary literature major of sorts, um, and I began writing and publishing while I was still an undergraduate. And so, and sometimes in big national magazines and in one book that was, I wrote a chapter in somebody else's book, I think I was 18. Um, 
And so uh, the doors of that literary world, which are closed or were closed before the internet and self-publishing arrived, uh, to so very many people um, were open to me, um, not so much through my own agency, but just by the way the chips fell. And, and so I found that, uh, you know, there's a little bit of Groucho Marx. Again, one of you will get that reference. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of Groucho Marx in the sense that I, I also am not keen on belonging to any club that will have me. Um, and, and so I found myself not feeling um, so copacetic and appreciative of that New York literary scene. I found that kind of writing to be mostly populated by people who wanted to be celebrities, who wanted to be applauded for their work and to go to cocktail parties and have people point and whisper. And this kind of approach to art, and I'm certainly not suggesting that this is true of everyone in that milieu, but I did find a lot of people like that. And I frankly found that masturbatory. I thought, you know, this is not really why I would sit at a computer and create something in hopes that somebody would read it and go, oh my goodness, what a clever fellow. So there, there, was, an, there was an ego aspect to this, which I found cheapened it for me and made me uncomfortable. And I, I executed a lot of maneuvers in my early career, which my manager and agents and, and editors felt were sort of self-sabotaging when it came to publishing success. And, and I realized that I wasn't, uh, you know, I was, for example, quite doing quite well as a crime writer. Hmm. Uh, and, and I was also at an early stage doing quite well in Hollywood as a screenwriter, selling scripts to major people and, and uh, so on. But I, I didn't really, I, I had a number of experiences which brought me to the frank realization that, you know, I would have an interaction with a director or something and realize, okay, number one, this is not a writer's medium, it's a director's medium, film. And number two, this is not why I became a writer. And so that begged the question, you know, why did I become a writer? And that question, you know, wasn't as clear to me as why I didn't. Hmm. Interesting. So, so, I mean, a facility with language, a pleasure in creating, uh, you know, other worlds, I, I think all those things, but not so much as an entertainer. I never really felt comfortable in the role of entertainer because I just didn't have that much respect for the profession. I take Hollywood to great task um, in the Mad Monk Manifesto, which is probably why you may not see any Hollywood celebrities endorsing the book. Um, but who knows, maybe they will. Um, it's straight talk about this kind of thing. I think our celebrity culture is something that is a, is a, is a tumor in our, in our society that needs to be excised. Um, and I would like to see people who are doing selfless work. I would like to see scientific researchers and soup kitchen uh, managers and these kinds of people, um, you know, law enforcement, firefighters. I'd like to see the kinds of people who actually do things to help other people be celebrated 
not so much people who pretend to be someone else for a living mm -hmm. and not so much um, people who write in hopes of becoming famous. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I guess that very strong salty view, you know, didn't sit so well with um, New York publishing and I probably had more than my share of run-ins in that business with people because I just didn't really like that whole thing. So I guess, you know, then it, it took a while to figure out that I'm really quite a self-centered writer in, in, that, in this one respect. And, and that is that I hear so many other writers say how miserable the writing process is and they so hate writing, but they love having written. I hear this a lot. And I hear it from some very successful good writers, including even some friends of mine. I actually love to do it. Mm -hmm. I, I cackle with glee as I sit there writing. And I, feel, and I feel like swallowing a knife when I can't figure out a, you know, a plot or a character or something. But to be engaged in all that is, is wonderful fun for me in general. And um, I love where my, I, I guess if I were to wear, uh, to be shoved into an fMRI as I was writing, it would appear that, you know, my brain was, uh, all of my pleasure centers were lighting up as I, as I was doing it. So for me, the creative thing, I, I do it because I love to do it. And as a monk, I have become trained in detachment from outcome. Right. So the fact that we are having this conversation and I have others notwithstanding, you know, to promote the book, um, I'm, I'm happy to do all that work, happy to talk to both of you, happy to do other, other interviews and so on that I have. But I, I don't have any particular attachment to outcome with the book. The attachment to outcome was I wanted it to be as good a book as I could make. Once I had finished that part, I really wasn't so interested and never have been. So if it sells very well and I make some money from it, great. That'll go to some Taoist charities and work I do. And if it doesn't, that's okay. I just go on to the next book. Mm -hmm. And so long as it is successful enough for me to be able to continue writing, I'm totally satisfied. That's awesome. That really reminds me of the, and I'm going to butcher it, but the Andy Warhol quote about um, let other people judge the work and while they're judging the work or whatever you're on to making the next thing because that's what you're actually about you're about making the work you're going to make whether it's writing or art do you have any ideas about where this like this idea of i have to write and it's so miserable but i love having finished writing comes from the, i mean it it's odd because artists can be so funny and have funny ideas like that that are kind of self uh, I don't know, is it like self-deprecatory almost about the work they seemingly love to do or have done? Most people don't go into any profession saying, gosh, I really hate doing this profession, so let me get into this field, and at least I'll be glad that I did it after. Do you, do you, you never experience that as a writer. We don't experience that when we do our creative work. We love doing our creative work. Do you know where the why we perpetuate this notion of, I hate writing. So, so it, is, it, is, it is antithetical to the Taoist tradition to claim to know why somebody else does something 
much less to be able to control it. Hmm. But I will say, I will say this, the, I can make two educated guesses. One educated guess is that there is a, um, some kind of neurological compulsion to express and communicate. And that may be linked to a desire to validate or for intersection and connection with other people that you know they're not getting in other areas of their lives. The second may be related, I suppose, and the two are not mutually exclusive, but neither are they really interdependent. Second might be that in particular about fiction writers, but maybe sometimes about people who write something like the manifesto, because I know I feel this, and I'm a novelist, actually I'm primarily a novelist, this is less of my usual thing. Um, it, it, sometimes the world can intrude and hit you on the head in such a way that you go either, wow, I have to create an alternative to this in which I can live because this world is just too grotesque. Um, so I'm just gonna make up one I like and live there, right? Or, um, you know, there's just things that really need to be said and they need to be said in a way that I'm not seeing them said elsewhere clearly in the way that I see them. And so I'm gonna do that. And so if you are motivated by one of those two ideas, then it might not be necessary to enjoy the process of doing so but it might be, but, but it might be necessary to do it anyway. Got it. The process of enjoying writing and just in, ge in general creating. Um, for us, a lot of times the act of create, creating something is in and of itself, its own kind of meditation. Has that been, you know, as a deep meditator, as a monk, um, is that a, an experience that you have also had? One of my, uh, my dearest Kung Fu brother, once came silently into my writing room and watched me writing and I hadn't realized he was there for a moment. And he said to me, you know, when you're writing, you hold your head at this weird angle. And I said, I do? He said, yeah, you know, do you ever get a sore neck? Cause you, you know, you kind of tilt your head to the left and you hold it there as you're, well, why is that? And I said, I, I, I didn't know I did that. And so then we had this discussion about the level of entrancement that comes in, you know, from this uh, process. And as I said earlier, I'm sure that if we put in a, my head in an MRI, you'd see a certain, you know, cascade of chemicals and a certain uh, starburst of electricity here and there. Um, and, and you know, so for me, I, I kind of cock my head when I'm doing it, when I really get going and that my fingers are flying over the keys and I'm doing a hundred and whatever words a minute and that comes the book, you know, my head is in this weird place. And now that he pointed it out, I've become aware of it now, you know which I sort of wish he hadn't done, but doesn't matter. And, and, but, but, you know, so I think that there is a, um, there is this deeply meditative uh, anesthesia, which arises during that kind of, you know, deep work. And of course, I'm trained to, you know, get into that kind of mode pretty quick. But, but I also remember that before I became a meditator, which is now quite a while ago, 
um, but in my young life, I was a motorcycle rider. And, and I remembered that, um, I think, you know, I, I'm definitely ADHD and all that, far, far up on that spectrum, um, have had those tests and so on. And, and so I think that things that really command my attention are, I use the word anesthetizing, you know, they are, they, they chill me out in a good way and they free me from certain plaguing compulsions or urges or impulses and I can be quiet and at peace. And, you know, riding a motorcycle way too fast in a dangerous, you know, to myself fashion um, was, was and remains one way to focus your attention in a no BS fashion because you know you cannot not pay attention right you know you just stop paying attention you die right away that's right. it right? right i mean that's it it's as simple as that stop paying attention you die and you don't die like you know later from something that you ate you die right now right. so um that that was you know a an early sort of addiction if you will to a certain uh, you know theta state and, and I think now I, I'm no longer attracted to that kind of activity simply because, you know, my brain is different now and I don't need that. Right. But I, I remember needing it and I remember, you know, what it felt like to get it. And I'm sure that there are many analogs to this out there among our, your listeners. Yeah, definitely. Well, whether it's, you know, we smoking pot or doing something else, you know, mushrooms, right. whatever. That's right. Yeah. So many. Um, and, you know, some of the negatives that can be pot can some of the positive kind of things that could be used in a negative fashion and vice versa. Uh, just it varies by person and use. But we, we want to get into a little bit more your Mad Monk Manifesto, which is your latest book. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your major motion picture projects? So, yeah, I'm not, that might have been like on a um, on an outdated CV. I'm not really sure what that's about, but I'll fill you in. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I have, I have had several novels optioned, um, for film in Hollywood. Um, none of them have yet been made. Uh, one of them was optioned three different times by three different directors, actually. Hmm. Um, and I do get calls from time to time about my fiction, uh, uh, particularly. So far, I haven't seen a movie. I'm not like really particularly interested in that. Although if somebody wants to do it, um, my attitude is that I am not interested in writing the screenplay um, because I feel like uh, most of what I see on the screen is God awful. And I, I don't want to be uh, held accountable for, you know, writing a, a great screenplay and having a director butcher it or actors mess it up and then it becomes something that has nothing to do with what I wrote. So optioning is lovely for me because then I can say, hey, if it turns out to be a great movie, I go, that was my story. And, and, uh, if, and, and if it turns out to be awful, I say, listen, I just sold the rights. And, you know, the butchery was up to them. So I, I, I settled on that as a, um, as a, as a, strategy and a tactic seems to work for me so far. Um, there, there are uh, some, I do have some projects going on in China um, with, uh, with a, a giant uh, film production house. 
based on my Chinese history novels. And, and uh, there was a period of time for a couple of years, especially where uh, the relationship between the United States and China was a bit different than it is right now, a little bit better. And they were interested in seeing a Westerner's interpretation of some of their history and some of their philosophy and martial arts and um, cultural icons and events. At the moment, um, Mr. Xi and Mr. Trump are engaged in a, um, in what reminds me of two teenagers standing at the urinal, um, looking at each, at each other uh, to see who's is bigger. And it's so it's so awful that you know it's not the time is really not great for an American to do any kind of high-profile business project in China. So I don't want to say that those projects are dead. I hope they're not dead. Um, but at the moment, uh, we're going to sort of we're going to wait until the politics settle out a little bit. Sure. So your latest book. Mad Monk Manifesto, a great name, a prescription for evolution, a revolution, and global awakening. Um, how did that come about? And um, is, it, is it just out? Is it just published? The book is about a week and a half old now. Um, and so I would say that's just out. Yes. We're just, I'm just beginning my, my media tour, if you will, uh, talking to nice folks like you. Um, and um, I think in this particular case, the genesis of the book is clear. I only was motivated to write this kind of book because I was so offended and outraged by things that are going on in our world. Uh, and so without going further into politics, let me just say that I, I just see so many things about the disconnection that we have one from each other, the disconnection that we have from nature, the, the sad tactics of retreating into video games and other fantasies because our basic social needs are not being met and we are depressed and angry as a country. Um, we see political things happening as a result of that depression and anger. But that's not really where the problem is. The problem is inside of us. And so the Taoist model is, you know, Gandhi had, there's a lovely quote from Gandhi about, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And, you know, we, we have some idea like that, although it's quite a bit grittier and more specific. Um, and we say, look, uh, if, if you want to see a harmonious, balanced, equilibrated world, then you have to create that inside yourself. And, you know, from a Western point of view, this might really be misunderstood as narcissistic. And, and it could not be further from that because it's not asking other people to appreciate you at all. That's not the idea. The idea is for each of us to do the hard work that most of us shirk in order to create a certain kind of person that we want to be. And the result of that is sort of an echo chamber effect and it radiates outward like dropping a stone in the pond. Yeah. And, and, and right. And so that's how we see. So instead of telling other people what to do 
And instead of, you know, ranting and screaming, we work on ourselves with the idea that that's the best and fastest and most efficient route to seeing change in the world. 100%. So that's what this book is about. Oh, we love that. That's very much what we are all about at I Create Daily um, for it to be a, a, a movement for creators serious about their art. We don't actually publish a lot of information, like how-to information, because without the mindset, without the setting the stage of personal self-responsibility and accountability and motivation and- From inside, as opposed to like the external pulls. Yes, without setting the stage. And, and as you said, improve yourself. If we improve ourselves, we improve the world. And the more we improve ourselves, the more we improve our immediate environment, which ripples out which I think you use that, in fact, you use that in the back of your book. Uh, in the same way ripples move away from a stone dropped into a pond. Uh, Mad Monk Manifesto begins with our personal lives discussing topics, topics such as diet, exercise, meditation, and mind-body practice and spreads to our public environment, et cetera. So this looks really wonderful. We hope that um, our audience will not only pick up a copy of Mad Monk Manifesto by Monk I was about ready to Monk Yun Yun Ro Monk Yun Ro, but oh, also that was well done. thank you. But also to go and leave a review afterwards, so that um, the more reviews, then the more people will be able to find your book as well. So um, we really appreciate your taking the time. I wish, uh, like before we started recording, we had a few exchanges, including discovering that you have turtles in your closet that you were going to tell us about. You have a, uh, your, your dog is in the background and you have an incredible sense of humor, which we didn't get a chance to get into uh, very much here, but you had us laughing um, and cracking up beforehand. So it's a great title and uh, it, it, we were really looking forward to seeing what else you come up with and seeing how this does as well. Do you have anything else you would like to share with our audience before we go? Uh, yes, to see um, sort of the way both fiction and nonfiction can can express ideas. Mm. Um, I have another title, uh, Yin, Y-I-N, A Love Story, yes. um, which is a recent book, which I think would also sort of flesh the whole thing out. I just, I just made um, a move to re- gain rights to that book and re-release it differently because I, I love it so much and it didn't, it, it sort of got lost in the shuffle among other things. Um, but, but anyway, I have, you know, there are more titles in my Uber, which are worth a look for people who like things about uh, Asian philosophy and history and action and uh, romance and all that. Absolutely. Awesome. You have a beautiful website. We love your uh, yin and yang um, yes. rotating, rotating logo. It's beautiful. Um, and the cover for yin, a love story, is also beautiful. When you say getting the rights back, getting the right back, rights back from the publisher who originally published it, are you going self-publishing? Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm going to hold on to it for a little bit because I have with Mango, the, uh, the press that it just did Mad Monk Manifesto, I have a contract for a few more books. And so those are actually already written and in the line, but I'm hoping to put in out again, like a second edition, um, because it's, it's really a, a fun book. And it's, uh, we, we may see that one as a film um, sooner than later. Oh, that yeah, would be wonderful. Oh, before we go, also, if you have another minute just to share, I know as a monk, you're very disciplined with daily rituals, meditation, probably getting up early. What is your writing? Um, what is
of your writing disciplines and habits like? So let me see if this works. Doing this very carefully because this is a big, huge monitor. He's and I haven't ever tried this before. So let's see what happens okay. here. His immense bookshelf moving his right. Yeah, I yeah, wasn't to show you that. I'm continuing to go past the bookshelf. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. We're maybe. In the room. maybe Don't push it off the desk. <laughs> no, I won't do that. Ooh, see those. Oh, yeah. See those. Um, Chinese weapons there. Mm -hmm. You see those spears and halberds and things, which are my the tools of my trade besides the computer. Yes. Um, furious writer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say furious? I am well, oh, furious too. Maybe so, I'm a serious yeah. writer. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So, so uh, what I found is that everybody has a little bit different biorhythm about creativity yes. and that, that it is not particularly helpful to force times of day that don't match when your brain wants to do creative things. So I used to be disciplined about writing early in the morning. And what I found when I did that was that I wrote, and that was when I had, you know, corporate jobs and so on. I found that, I did very well with editing and proofreading, mm. but not with coming up with new material. My, my creative brain, because you know, I wasn't engaged. My editing brain was engaged. Right now, it turns out that somewhere around 3.30, like right around now, the time we're recording this in the afternoon is when my creative brain, my juices start flowing and it goes on into the evening. Uh, regrettably, I teach classes on many evenings that are right smack in the middle of my most creative time, which is why my classes are um, affectionately known as the Tai Chi Cabaret. Uh, but but um, I, I, I try to come home and find, um, you know, what's left in there to apply on those nights. Otherwise, when I'm not teaching, you know, five o'clock is like prime time for me. I shut the door. Phone is not even in the room. Never mind turned off. It's not present. Um, internet is disabled, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, email and texts and I'm, I'm just, you know, doing my thing. And that goes on for a few hours and then generally uh, I'll get hungry. And if I can turn out, um, two or 3000 words that I'm really happy with in a day, that to me is a good day. Nice. That's two to 3000 words a day. That's a good goal. Well, again, it was a pleasure to meet you. Yes. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about yourself with our audience. And we look forward to more and to your book, The Mad Monk Manifesto. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us for the I Create Daily podcast. Please let us know what creatives you would like us to interview and what topics you would be interested in hearing more about. And if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on iTunes. We value your feedback. We read all the reviews and it just helps us get the word out on the I Create Daily podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. <laughs>